Radio Drome. It's another eargasm of a radio drome. Yes, I just said eargasm. For those of you who care, Brad is not in this episode. It's We are recording this on his birthday, so he is off getting alcohol poisoning somewhere. It is myself, Alex Jowski. Hello. The Marquis de Suede, I should say. Yes, I like that nickname. We have a really awesome guest back with us, Diamanda Hagen. Hello, everyone. Uh, happy to be here again. No, you're not. Don't lie to us. Well, I, I'm happy to be on. I'm not really happy at the moment, but we can talk about that later on. We'll talk about that. we got to do the Adam and Eve promo first. And right now, you could even partake in this since you're in the States at the time we're recording this. Yeah, I am. I'm, uh, I'm with my wife. You go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, and you get 50% off of a single item. You get three free DVDs. You get U.S. shipping and a free mystery gift, all for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. I've said that so many times in my life. I can almost recite that in my sleep at this point. Do you, do you get to choose what DVDs you get? Nope. I think I think they cycle them through, but it's a set. You get these three this month. You get these three the next month and so on. But I don't think it's the same three, for instance, if you order a year apart. I'm not sure. And the mystery gift is literally mysterious. It's That's totally randomized, so I have no clue what the mystery gift is. That's not a joke. It's something from BadDragon.com. Have you ever seen BadDragon.com? No, but don't take this the wrong way. If you're recommending it, I pro- it's probably not for me. It, it, it's, it's, it's my old purpose to stir people with a, with a link website that won't actually get them in trouble. Because <laughs> you have a much higher tolerance for this stuff than I do, Diamanda. Bad Dragon is basically a sex toy website, but everything is based on real and imaginary animals. Oh, so it's just creepy. So, so you can have dildos that are made out of like cast from a dolphin's dildo, or they have like you know dragon penises and things. Yeah, that's su- successfully creeped me out. Good. That is it, that is unique. Go, go to baddragon.com and be and find it hilarious. Right before we started recording, you were telling me about a movie that disturbed even you. Can you tell the audience what you told me? I, I literally, just before we started the call, watched a movie, which is in my next season of reviews, and I was taking it for notes. Uh, I bought this movie based on the trailer, and I, I, I this was my watching it for the first time, and I was taking notes for the first time, and fuck, bleak, disturbing, fucked up, and I have a high tolerance for this shit. I, I watched it with my wife, and she doesn't have. She's not watched the same stuff I've watched, so I'm genuinely a little worried. So, what what was the movie? I'll, I'll tell you actually, because in the next, it'll oh, probably yeah, be if like you don't want to if you don't want to ruin it for next season, yeah. Well, my next season, I'll probably announce the full lineup for my next season in the next month or so. So, uh, it is where the dead go to die. I came across it on the That Guy with the Glasses forum. Someone basically set up a, a thread saying someone must review this in a copy of the trailer. And I, I, I ordered the DVD within about 30 seconds of the trailer starting. I quite regret it right now. I, I have to make this funny. <laughs> <laughs> and see, that's why you're a true professional. If you can make that funny, Diamanda, then you're a true professional. Yeah, I, 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 made, I, I did a comedy review of Slaughtered Vomit Dolls, and oh. I, am, I am worried about this. Yeah, Slaughtered Vomit Dolls is a tough movie to watch. I, I made it <laughs> funny, so... Well, but but then Joe Bob Briggs made I Spit on Your Grave somehow funny. So look at it like that. That's one of the most serious and disturbing rape movies I've ever seen. And the commentary that Joe Bob gives is absolutely hilarious. So it can't be done. Oh, yeah, definitely can. Well, with this one, I think it'll be easier for 
It's difficult. Uh, it's a CGI animated film, and the CGI does look like a PS1 game. But after a while, that stops being hilarious and starts being an actual like visual style. Then it's and it just sort of it starts out. Haha, I can make fun of this. It just keeps going and going and going and going and going and going, and it gets harder and harder and harder. You feel your wish to live draining from you. Yeah, I just looked up this movie on IMDb, and it sounds pretty unique. Yeah. Like, yeah, well, Alex, you and I haven't seen it. She has. Yeah, I, I, the, the description is just... This film, if they tried to make it in live action and they used the same angles and showed the same stuff, it would not be le- could not be legally released, probably. I almost want to grab the people who were freaked out by Human Centipede and or Serbian film and say, you fucking pussies! Well, th- then let me ask you, if, if the three of us can play a little armchair psychologist here, why do people, and the three of us are all in this category, and I know Brad is too, why do we seek out films like this? Why do we seek out films that are so disturbing we know they're going to stick with us? I don't especially seek out disturbing films. Films don't tend to make me disturbed. Well, my my tolerance for this used to be much lower, but in the last couple of years, it's been incredibly high. Like I remember watching 127 Hours with my wife in the cinema, and she 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 was crying, and she was affected by the frankly in real life horrible thing that was happening on screen with the sky. Because the guy had been a dickhead earlier in the film, I was laughing my head off. It takes a lot to to make a film disturb me. I don't seek out disturbing. I just seek out interesting and different. Disturbing just comes along with it sometimes. I just like movies that I can remember because everything nowadays is kind of like the same movie over and over. And it's just so devoid of any individuality. But okay, then then let me ask this. Why do we, as as a movie-going culture, why do we gravitate towards the less mundane for instance i'm thinking of like fulci's zombie the eyeball scene everyone i know has shown that scene to their friends whether they like the movie or not so that scene clearly stuck with people and people sought it out when they heard hey there's this italian zombie movie from the late 70s where they slowly show a shard of wood going through a woman's eye you need to see this wouldn't that normally be a warning to maybe i don't want to see this People have a tendency to, uh, you, people want to see what they're not supposed to see. They want to have what they're not supposed to have. It's just human nature when something is out of limits. And the eye, uh, it's a bit like going, it's a bit like dentistry. It's, it's a part of your, of yourself that you don't like people going near. So seeing it happen to some, something happen to it in someone else is affecting. When I hear about something that's so out of the norm, and let's just stick with zombie for a second. When I heard that there's a scene where a zombie, fights a shark, and it's not fake-looking, I said, I don't think I've ever seen that on film. I really need to see that. Whereas some people go, the zombie that fights a shark, that's just dumb. It's the zombie that fights a shark that I find more interesting, to be honest. And I do, too. For one thing, that scene is shot gorgeously. The colors, the cinematography, it's a beautifully shot scene, no matter what was happening. So there is that, and then there's the fact that I don't think I'd ever seen a zombie fight a shark before. Or since, really. Yeah, it's, uh, I think, uh, actually, I think if if Romero had managed to make his Resident Evil, because he scripted it, I think there was a scene with zombies and sharks. Well, there, um, was, a, there was a zombie shark in the game, so that, that makes sense, actually. I, I, uh, I didn't play much Resident Evil, so. In the first game, at one point, a 
well, it's not a zombie. It's more like a mutated shark attacks you. So I could actually see that being kind of in line with the game, actually. But but then why do you think people seek out – a perfect example is a Serbian <laughs> film. That that movie made all of its money based on word of mouth of of everybody else going, oh, my God, this is the most shocking, disturbing, sick film I've ever seen. I need to show it to others, too. Part of it is watching other people's reactions whenever you know what's going to happen. I, I know for myself, I'm always drawn to the weird. When I hear about some Hollywood movie, I mean, we joke about it all the time on Geek Juice and on this show, that every movie's a cookie cutter. That, oh, it's the same plot we've seen a hundred times, just this time it's got Tom Cruise in it, this time it's got Brad Pitt in it. And then whenever you do see one that is so different, you go, all right, that's different, but I'm but there are certain circumstances like World War Z, I wanted the cookie cutter movie. I wanted the movie that was in the book. I don't want the Lemmings movie that they've made. Does that make sense? Was World War Z really a cookie cutter? If it was adapted accurately to the book, would it really have been a cookie cutter movie? No. No, it's but, a pretty unique book. Yeah, it's a pretty unique book. But when they first said they were going to adapt it, they said it was going to have a main character, something the book does not, and it would follow the spread of the plague. Basically, it's a Romero film. I went, okay, that could still be good if it follows the overall storyline of the book. And then the trailer we got shows it's a totally different story and it's got nothing whatsoever to do with the book. And funny enough, Brad Pitt is in total I don't want to be here mode, which I think is hilarious. Especially considering he produced it. Yeah, and he I've heard he's not on speaking terms with the director or any of the rewriters at this point. He basically is telling him to void his contract. He's not coming back for reshoots. He's he's done with the movie. And I, I think that's fascinating. In a way, I like the story surrounding the World War Z movie better than I think I'll probably ever like the movie. It's a bit like the 1990s Island of Dr. Moreau then. Yes, a movie that's not very good, but you could make a movie out of the making of that, and that would be fascinating if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah. I, I would love to see a whole thing about that, like a documentary or even a feature film. The, that's what, what happened there was insane. Have you ever seen one of the interviews with Richard Stanley, the original director that was fired after three days? Yes, I uh, I have a copy of the Criterion release of The Island of, of Lost Souls, and uh, he's interviewed on that about it. Yeah, he, he was basically completely screwed by Weather and Val Kilmer, and Val Kilmer admitted he was so high during that movie he doesn't remember shooting it. Yeah, and Val Kilmer himself, it wasn't all his fault, he... He found out like the day before they were supposed to film that his uh, that his wife was divorcing him, and so he demanded to be given a different part so he could leave the early to go back to see his wife. And then you, know, you also had Marlon Brando, a guy who doesn't give a shit on the best of times. His daughter had just committed suicide whenever he was in pre-production, and like this island he he owned was nuked for the French. Uh, it's it's a perfect storm of Jesus Christ of everything that can go wrong going wrong. Except for zombie apocalypse, yeah. Well, then then why do you think truly unique scripts? Or Now, some of the ones I'm going to give as examples aren't very unique now, but at the time that they were proposed, these hadn't really been done to death before. Why do you think truly unique scripts get thrown at the bottom of the pile and nobody wants to produce them? For example, if they had adapted Psycho 2, the novel instead of the Psycho 2 we got, which I liked. I loved the Psycho 2 we got. The story that Robert Block originally wanted them to make was basically a movie company is trying to make a movie out of the events of the first Psycho, 
and people start dying and Norman Bates is a consultant and he get, gets blamed for it. That hadn't really been done before when oh, they started Scream doing 3. that in the late 70s. Yes, but this is the late 70s, so don't bring Scream into this yet, Dion. I know. I, I, I can, it's, it's similar to what was done 20 years later. I don't mean to, you know, I, Scream 3 is terrible. I don't mean to insult Psycho 2, the book. But I'm just saying, why do you think that was rejected and the studio just said, we kind of want just a, re- you know, a remake of Psycho, oh. but in color? They want what's profitable. Movies are a business, so they, uh, when they discover what's profitable, they want to redo that. It's like, why does McDonald's constantly try to make all of the Big Macs very similar? You know, rather than take the chance that, you know, this crazy guy in the middle of North Dakota in a McDonald's might actually come up with a better burger if you just let him experiment on a couple of customers. Basically, studios, they like money more than critical acclaim. This is what happens if you do get a truly unique idea out there, or or maybe not even unique, just a different take on an old idea. That can really resonate with audiences, which resonates into word of mouth, which resonates to critics, which resonates into dollars. Yeah, it can. The way I look at it, people are sick of the cook. This is why, like, the Friday the 13th movies had to, and I... I don't think I've ever used this term before with the later Friday the 13th get creative with their plots because people were, weren't going to see the same movie over again. Four, five, six, seven, and eight are basically the same movie with minor differences. Whereas for nine, they said, just screw it. Let's just go. Let's just go with well, whatever uh, weird we have. Isn't four the one where, uh, is it four or five where Jason is, is dead and it's this guy, this ambulance driver? Five. Who, that's, that's five. five. That's, See, that's, that's, a, that's a difference. And that's a difference. And then you have the body swapping one. I think that's nine. Yeah. And then you have Jason X in space. Well, I love Jason X. I don't think I, anyone I, else does, though. No, I, I loved I love Jason X. Uh, I've said that many a times. That movie has no right to be as good as it is. But every, the reason why uh, people don't tend to do that is because nine times out of ten, whenever you get creative or do something weird, it, it will either not hit critically or commercially, and the co- company will would rather stick with something that they know will make money rather than something might hit it big or will probably not. I wish that they didn't think like this, but they do. A perfect example, Halloween. Halloween 3 tried to do something radically different. I <laughs> love the film. And then they just said, that didn't work. Just go back to Michael Myers. And that that's disappointing. Even though I like Halloween 4 a lot, it was disappointing that, like, like the new Halloween 3, I don't think take the same direction that they are. It's just going to be another Michael Myers movie. Are they doing another Halloween 3, uh, you know, reboot? I thought Rob Zombie's one had pretty much. Oh, no, it's being done by Todd Farmer and... What's his face? It's Patrick being written Rogers. by the guy that wrote Jason X and Drive yeah. Angry, so that actually encourages me a little bit. Because and from the director of Drive Angry and My Bloody Valentine. Because I is personally, it, I like, I loved Jason X and Drive Angry, so I'm behind Todd Farmer on this one. Is it a is it a reboot? Is it a continuation of the original? Is it a sequel to Rob Zombies? It's a sequel to Rob Zombies, but they haven't released any details other than that. All we know okay. is it's it's a Michael Myers story again. The, um, see, my worry with uh, whenever they reboot horror long-running franchises, you know, whether this be James Bond, Star Trek, or Friday the 13th, whatever, basically, whenever the reboot run, you know runs out of steam with its sequels, when it's it, it won't continue, it'll, they'll just reboot it again and attempt to get more money and give it back. Spider-Man. There you go. They 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 the Amazing Spider-Man shouldn't have been an origin story. Or even the new Superman movie, or sorry, Man of Steel. It's not called Superman. 
Okay, Superman Returns sucked. I give you that. But this one's not a sequel to that. It's the origin story again. Yeah, with some superhero movies, you need to have the origin story because they're not famous. You know, Superman, Spider-Man, Batman don't need it. We all fucking know. Exactly. Now, I understand, like, with the X-Men. Yeah, prior to the movie, the general public didn't know them. I get that. I hate when a movie takes takes an origin we already know, such as Superman. I think everyone, you could go to the jungles of Uganda and show a picture of Superman to a kid in the street, and they'd know who it was, and that he is the last son of Krypton, and he gets his powers from the sun, and Mon Pa Kent. You don't need to waste an entire movie showing his origin again and how he you know, embraces who Superman is. That's just pointless. Why studios don't take chances with original movies? They let the independents do that, and when that independent original movie makes a lot of money, the studios are right there to make the exact same amount of money ripping it off four or five times. Which is why when I do see it, something really, even if it's not original, like I brought up before, if it's just a unique take or something I haven't seen before, such as Drive Angry. Drive Angry was not like a lot of the movies that it was sold as. Because that movie, I don't recall in the first trailer even knowing that it was a supernatural film. Me neither. I thought it was just a car movie. Yeah, and then you find out that there's all this hell and William Fickner stealing every scene, and you go, this was not like anything else that was out at the time. That was a good thing. And it lost money. Of course, yes, it lost money, because it was different. Yeah, this is why I review the movies I review. I, I genuinely want to expand what people, films people get in contact with. Whether, you know, I genuinely hope that no matter how terrible the movie I just reviewed is, I want someone to be so interested in the subject matter based on my thing that they go off and buy it. You know, uh, I reviewed uh, Nixon and Hogan Smoke Christmas, which is a film by Kevin Strange. He did a little movie. He's retired from filmmaking, writing books now, but he told me, cause, cause basically I have limited contact with him. I gave his YouTube account in my review and said, told people to go on, you know, to, you know, to ask, you know, contact him to buy his movies. Cause, you know, I got a deal $50 for his entire set of movies and a t-shirt. Nice. And he contact, he contacted me later on to say that he managed to fund like two or three trips to conventions to sell his, to horror conventions to sell his books based on the DVDs that he sold because of me. That's and awesome. It's wonderful. Yes, that, that, that's awesome for both you and him. The namesake that this show takes it from. Videodrome. Woolly original film. In 1982, this film was ahead of its time. And it was a bomb at the box office. It was a bomb on home video. It had some of the most negative test screenings of Universal Pictures. But it was so shockingly different, it eventually found its voice. And it's made its money back now on video. But why do you think Universal, in all honesty, I'm surprised Universal backed this movie back in 81 when it was being shot. I really am. Could be something to do with just the fact that, you know, it's Cronenberg being Cronenberg. You just give him a budget and let him do what he wants. But he wasn't really a big name then. I mean, he'd only had Scanners, which was a minor, you know, relative hit. And he had Rabbit and Shivers. He'd really, he hadn't done The Brood or anything yet. Scanners has two sequels, so it must have made at least a decent amount of money back. No, Scanners has has four sequels. There was a oh, spin-off okay. series called Scanner Cop and Scanner Cop 2 that oh. are set in the same universe. So that actually has five movies in that, that franchise. Well, Scanners must have made a decent amount of money then. So maybe that's – maybe they just saw, oh, Scanners, this is 
you know, this is profitable enough to get sequels, so uh, here you go, David Cronenberg, do something weird. It, it could be, but then the, the test audience cards, the test audience cards for Videodrome are hilarious to read. Somebody found one of them in, in some old vault at Universal and posted them online. What did some, they say? They were saying things like, I can't respect any movie studio that would release garbage like this. This is the worst film I've ever seen. I've never seen such vile filth. Every single card, Universal said up to this point in their history, they had never had this negative of a, of a reaction to a, one of their movies before. Did they recruit their test audiences from local churches or something? It shocks <laughs> me when I see something like Videodrome. I still am shocked that that movie ever came out. Well, once you've made it, uh, unless you're going to you know, expend a fuckload more on trying to remake it or you know change massive parts of it, you might as well just release it. If they figure they've got a massive bomb, they've probably figured that reshooting parts of it or re-editing it is not going to make it any better. But then look at, look at House of a Thousand Corpses. House of a Thousand Corpses was made, I believe it was, uni- it was either Universal or Paramount, I think Universal, for, for them, and th- the test screenings were so awful... They basically sat on the film for almost three years before Rob Zombie could gather enough money of his own to buy the movie back from them when then he gave it to Lionsgate and it became a huge hit. Did they ever release the uncut House of a Thousand Corpses? Because I have have a cut version. I don't know if the – I've got it on DVD. I don't know if that's cut or uncut. It's pretty damn gory, but I never actually looked at the rating to know what, what version that was. Because I know the version I've, that I've got, I, I didn't think much of it. But I did like Devil's Reject, so... See, to me, with House of a Thousand Corpses, I didn't like the story, I didn't like the characters, except for Sid Haig. He stole every scene he was in. I, I, I liked what Zombie was trying to do. I liked his direction in it. I liked the camera angles, the cinematography, the filters, the editing. I just thought he forgot to write the goddamn thing. You know, it's like it's like he just came up with it after a weekend of watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 and 2 over and over and said, I'll just do that. Yeah, and if you're going to basically copy something that, you know, I, I, I thought it was like a not as good sort of version of 2001 Maniacs, you know, the remake of 2000 Maniacs. Oh, I haven't, yes, I haven't uh, seen the remake of that. Is it the one with Robert Englund? Yeah, it's, it's... yeah. yeah it's good. Its sequel is terrible. Okay, they I, made I, a 2002 Maniacs, I think, is what they called the sequel to the remake. Oh, uh, no, no, it was it was two, it was 2001 Maniacs: Field of Screams. Oh, that's what it was. So that's they even dumber. <laughs> and Bill Mosley plays the mayor. The it might have actually been an okay film, but unfortunately, they had n- liter- almost literally no budget. It's 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 oh man, it was probably made for about twenty thousand uh, dollars. That's yeah, even for a direct to video, that's low. And it's the same director. It's got Bill Mosley. It's got Ogre from uh, Skinny Puppy, I think. It's got the its cast and sort of you know people behind it are way too good for the budget that they had. Bill Mosley does that a lot. Uh, okay, the, the way Joe Dante put it on the commentary for the Howling when he's talking about John Carradine, he said John Carradine, you know, always a workman. He he never half-assed it, no matter how bad or low budget the movie was. But he said John Carradine said yes to a lot of movies he should not have. And I see that with Bill Mosley today. I think Bill Mosley is an incredibly talented actor. And I see him in such garbage that it's – I just have to ask myself, really, was was Rent due? I mean, why are you in this, Bill? He sort of vanished for a long time. I, he appears in the weirdest places, like uh, Army of Darkness. It's like it's probably like the fourth or fifth viewing before you'll notice him. 
Yeah, because I think he tried to retire for uh, – Sid Haig did the same thing until Tarantino pulled him out of retirement for the cameo in Jackie Brown. He's the judge that sentences Jackie at the very beginning. I didn't realize that. You didn't realize him. that was Sid Haig? You didn't realize no. that Sid Haig is the judge? did not realize it. I knew he retired for a while because I saw all the stuff he did in the 70s and then all the stuff he did in the late 90s. So I knew there was a period where he didn't make anything. Yeah, he retired. Tarantino got him out of retirement to do that little cameo. And since he and Pam Greer had worked together in all those exploitation films, they'd worked together on like a good seven movies in the 70s together. She didn't know he was playing the judge and she blew the first take when she saw him and she just started laughing. <laughs> That's cool. That's like the... The most unexpected judge cameo since uh, Larry Flint turned up in The People vs. Larry Flint to get himself for obscenity. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, Larry Flint sentencing Larry Flint to prison. But you, you, you even have, and with all the crap I give Tarantino, everyone knows how I, I love Jackie Brown, I'm really surprised a movie like Jackie Brown got made. Look at what films were like in 1997. You weren't making, the 70s throwback kind of movie hadn't, leached its way into mainstream Hollywood. I can't think of another film of that era, probably two or three years on either side, that was like Jackie Brown. And no, I don't think Pulp Fiction was. Pulp Fiction, to me, is not a 70s throwback. It's a 50s fiction is throwback. Yeah, it, it's very different. But it's, it's, not, it's not what the style Jackie Brown brought to it. Jackie Brown oh. honestly feels more 2000s than it does 97 to me. Tarantino had just come off of Pulp Fiction, and he didn't make another film uh, after Jackie Brown for about five years. So I think he put a lot of his cachet into his his clout into making Jackie Brown, and th and that's why he had trouble making another movie. That's what I think. And because Jackie Brown was a big flop, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Jackie Brown was a big flop, but I think some of the original casting decisions would have been different. Samuel L. Jackson's part was originally written for James Earl Jones. Hmm. That would have been. That would have been a radically different movie, I think. And there was, was a couple, there was a couple of I think Bruce Willis was originally cast for Robert De Niro's part. What about wasn't uh, didn't Michael Keaton's character in that turn up in a couple other films around then as well? He, he he was also he played the same character in Out of Sight, and even though it wasn't played by Michael Keaton, his character is in the first episode of the Karen Sisko TV series, but he's played by Peter Horton in that. Well, because they're. Same character, and the, they're both from Elmore Leonard books. Yeah, because all, all the Elmore Leonard books are, are interlinked, such as there's another Elmore Leonard book that has the Robert De Niro and Samuel L. Jackson characters in it when they're still in prison, when they're first getting to know each other. They're side characters in another one of Elmore Leonard's books. So all his stuff is connected. The Tarantino-verse is getting uh, incredibly complicated. When you bring you the Elmore Leonard-verse into it, yes. Do you hear the – so I read a, th a theory ages ago about the Tarantino-verse, that there's actually two Tarantino-verses. You've got the real world, which is uh, like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, and the real world is uh, oh, Inglorious Bastards there as well. Inglorious Bastards changed history, so that created the Tarantino-verse. But then films like From Dust Till Dawn and Death Proof and Kill Bill are actually films in that world. Kill Bill is an adaption of... The Fox Force 5, I think it was called, from Pulp Fiction, that was mentioned with Uma Thurman's character had been in a pilot. That's that Kill Bill is meant to be an, an adapt, a film adaption of that show she was in, uh, but made for the big screen in that universe. It's really complicated. Well, and then you also got to think that also pulls in Natural Born Killers and True Romance as well, which are movies he didn't direct, but were his scripts, if you really want to get complicated like that. 
Yeah, it's I, the the person said that the general rule of thumb is the if if the film's more insane, then it's going to be a film in the side of the universe rather than a real 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 events. Natural Born Killers is an interesting one. I gen, I know Tarantino wrote it and Oliver Stone directed it, but watching it, it feels to me much more like an Oliver Stone script directed by Quentin Tarantino than the other way around. Oliver Stone heavily rewrote the script. Tarantino actually tried to have his name removed from the final version of Natural Born Killers because. In his words, Oliver Stone screwed his script up, which I disagree. I've read Tarantino's script, and it wasn't bad. So I'm not bashing Tarantino for that. It was not a bad script. It was a lot lot more chaotic, and I know that's saying something with Natural Born Killers. And it didn't Mm. have some of the social satire. All the social satire of the media, that really came in heavy in Stone's rewrites. And that's one of the things I loved about Natural Born Killers. Oh, it's a brilliant film. It's uh, it's one of Stone's best and one of Tarantino's best. And it's one Either of the way. last. It's one of the last pre-insanity Oliver Stone movies too. Out, out of the films he did since then, uh, I haven't seen Savages. But I'd Neither like have I. But I, Brad told me how terrible Savages is, and on that one, I'm deferring to Brad's judgment. Well, you know, when it comes to Oliver Stone movies, I, I I like Alexander. I own three copies of it on three different cuts, and they're making a fourth cut, and I'm going to buy it on DVD. I that's one I haven't seen. I haven't seen Alexander, but I, I despise World Trade Center. I thought U-Turn was absolutely horrendous. I, I thought Stone just kind of – he lost his mind as the 90s went on. Well, World Trade Center was okay. It didn't feel like an Oliver Stone movie. U-Turn, I can't really recall. I've seen it. It didn't leave much of a mark on me. But apart from – I love Alexander. Apart from that, uh, Natural Born Killers probably was his last great film. I'd agree with that. And I I thought Tarantino's script for True Romance was, again, that was very unique. That was something, because True Romance was, what, 93, I think, that was made? Maybe 94? Something like that, yeah. Tarantino was trying something different. I actually really would would have liked, the fans are going to go crazy because I give all this crap to Tarantino, but at the same time, I wonder how different something like True Romance would have been had it not been Tony Scott directing it and had it, if it had been Tarantino directing his own script for True Romance. Because I think True Romance is one of the best action movies of the 90s. Do you notice that uh, there was something interesting? You know, you got these comment, you know, things about, you know, what would these scripts have been like if, so- if you had someone else had directed them? Ter- Quentin Tarantino offered Terry Gilliam the script to either Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction. Before it was made, he he was at Cannes and he was hanging around. He met Terry Gilliam by by rant, by just chance, and he gave the script to Terry Gilliam. Terry Gilliam said it was, and Terry Gilliam said he thought it was really really good, but he shouldn't direct it. And if you look, Terry Gilliam is thanked in the credits of Reservoir Dogs for giving for <laughs> keep, for giving encouragement just to keep trying. And I think that's good because while while I don't like Pulp Fiction, I it's not a movie I like at all. I respect what it did. And see, all my problems with Tarantino come from the fact that I don't think the man has yet made, and I'm talking about the movies he's directed, an original film. When everything he does is a reference to something else, an homage to something else, or the characters talking about another movie, you, you're not an original filmmaker. That's, that's where my issue comes in. And of course, Reservoir Dogs, it's a blatant ripoff, but I absolutely love it. And people give me crap over that dichotomy all the time. Did you ever watch The Critic, Diamanda? Did you guys get that show over there? I have. I've heard of The Critic, and I know he turned up in The Simpsons, but I haven't seen any episodes. I tried to get a hold of some to watch, but I haven't managed to so far. 
the whole series is available over here. You can get it really easy. Otherwise, I can send them to you online later. But there was one episode where Jay Sherman, he's he's basically an ultra-cynical cinema snob parody of what Roger Ebert would be. He goes to Hollywood and he gets hired as a screenwriter and they want him to write Ghost Chasers 3. He, he has this really original script that the studio executive is like, this is so good, we can't possibly make it. And he throws it on this pile in like a sealed vault of all the scripts that are too good to ever really be made into movies. Oh, like... Uh, that was like not that bad of a parody, you know? Like Barton Fink. He he spends the entire film trying to – he's a novelist and he tries to write a script for a wrestling movie in the 50s. And when he finally finishes it, he gives it to them and they're like, we can't fucking make this. This is good. This is like too good. I wanted you to make some, write something shit. He, he then goes insane and John Goodman runs around and there's this fire. It's great. Well, because I've, I've seen that kind of thing parodied all the time where quality gets pushed aside for quantity. And like right now – and keep in mind, I have not seen The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey Part 1. How does a book that's barely 300 pages get made into nine hours of film? They're doing a bridge. Like, the third movie isn't really based on The Hobbit. It's based off of other things Tolkien wrote to kind of bridge well, together the two books. Well, not, no, actually, not quite. It's uh, rather than doing one movie that's a bridge, they're doing, uh, they've taken the story of The Hobbit, which would have probably been about three hours, and they have added a fuckload from the appendices of Lord of the Rings, the Silmarillion, a bunch of other things that they have the rights to, basically to turn The Hobbit into another Lord of the Rings, which I'm fine with. I saw The Hobbit, uh, the first part, in 48 frames, and I, I, I thought the 48 frames is interesting, but uh, as a film, I thought it was up, up there with the other Lord of the Rings movies. See, I'm on Brad's side. I didn't like those. I mean, you know, I'm not diminishing anyone if they enjoy the Hobbit-verse, but those movies are not made for me. I didn't enjoy the I didn't enjoy Lord of the Rings or Two Towers. Never saw Return of the King because why would I see the third one if I didn't like the first two? And I just have no interest. To me, The Hobbit was already made into a great movie in 1977. Yeah, Maybe. but that didn't that didn't feature the Seventh <laughs> Doctor. No, it didn't. Don't agree. Sylvester with McCoy is the whole reason I'm going to go watch The Hobbit. Once I found out about that, I was sold. Nerd. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I I really enjoyed The Hobbit. The the 48 frames is fascinating. It's the I, some of it, I'm not sure. You know, they they do have like a, it does make people's actions look a bit unnatural at times, and it, that sort of improved as the film went on. I don't know if my eyes adjusted. It's definitely going to force if they if people do it more often to improve improve the craftsmanship of filmmaking. It's going to force the makeup to be better, sets to be better, and uh, it'll be like you know the upgrading from VHS to DVD. It's like you watch on D shows on DVD that were made. Like uh, I watched Star Trek: Deep Space Nine on DVD, and the makeup is really obvious. It's it's like that. You can see where the makeup joins, and it's going to force them to be better makeup artists. And I'm for that. But I don't think in your Deep Space Nine example, I don't think you can you can hold something made back in 1993, made for standard definition and made for television to be held to the same standards that say the new JJ Abrams make up in those films. Oh, oh, I'm not. I'm just I just it's it's like watching something uh that is made with regular film makeup, watching it in 48 frames is is a similar to watching something made for VHS on DVD. The 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 problems with the image are noticeable like People have commented on the, the Hobbit feet being bad in, in the movie. I didn't notice that. The, the, I noticed the, the fake ears that Martin Freeman was wearing as Bilbo. They were pretty much as obvious as the 1990 Captain America ones. 
because this is the first 48 frames big feature film they haven't got the hang of changing how they do things to accommodate the 48 frames so you can see these problems in the film steadicam operators are trained to work at a particular speed and uh you know thing to get smoothness at 24 frames a second at 48 frames steadicam work looks choppy it looks there there's problems with it and uh, they're going to have to retrain steadicam operators it's it's just fascinating to watch this big feature film how you, the, the deficiencies of filmmaking are just blown up so big personally i hope they continue with the 48 frames because it's uh it is better quality. It's just interesting to see a film with its flaws so gl- so obvious because well, of it. It's, it. It almost seems like what you're talking about is you, you kind of lose the old style of filmmaking after a while. For instance, have you ever listened to the commentary for Young Frankenstein? Uh, no, I haven't, but I'm not a big fan of Young Frankenstein, so I don't turn it on DVD. Basically, when Mel Brooks made that movie, black and white had been – nobody had made a big-budget black and white movie – in 15, 20 years at that point. So when he wanted to shoot it black and white, he ran into one of the problems that Tarantino did with Kill Bill, where he shot the whole movie in color and then tinted it black and white. You have to light black and white different than you light than color film. None of his crew on Young Frankenstein knew how to light a black and white film. He had to go dig out all the old Universal veterans who had retired who had been retired for 20 years to teach his crew how to light for black and white. It's like that the art of that had completely been lost. And that's one of the big that's one of the problems I had with the black and white in Kill Bill. It was clearly color tinted later because I look at cinematography and you can tell that that's not lit right. That's not lit like a black and white film should be. Yeah, to to evoke the well, it depends. Was Tarantino going for the to evoke the 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 black and white look? Uh, of of old films or was he going for a more modern black and white look because whenever the lighting back then was different from the lighting now so it's was he deliberately going for the old style look or was he not trying to go for it because that the lighting would depend on that young frankenstein he definitely wanted a universal 30s look but tarantino i i'm not sure if he was really going for that I, i i don't know i don't know what what his motivations were for i just noticed when i saw it in the theater it was just it was one of those things that bugged me because like uh, the way uh, to go back to the howling commentary, Joe Dante says there are two types of color movies: movies that happen to be in color and color movies. And he likes to make color movies. That's why you always see Joe Dante with all these great red and blue and green lights all over the place, because he wants to exploit the fact that you're making a color movie and not just making a movie that happens to be in color. Yeah, that's a, that's a little bit like uh, my philosophy for when I do my review show. I exploit the fact that I have access to interesting lighting alterations I can do uh, in post-production, and so I, I, I interesting the fuck out of my footage. Right, and I, I have no problem with that, but you have you ever run into, when you're doing that, you'll notice it doesn't quite look right because the lighting when you were initially shooting is not quite right for, say, the green filter you wanted to add, just as an example? Um, well, I don't really add filters. It's, it's a bit of a bit different than that, but... In the in the early days, okay, the first review I did, I don't know how I managed it, but I was in a fully lit room, and I managed to do some uh, light alterations to it, and it made me perfectly perfectly lit, and everything behind me was black. People who watched it thought I filmed it in a dark room. And then I spent the next six episodes trying to recreate that and failing, so eventually I decided I'm just going to do something different every time based on the lighting conditions I have. So all of my episodes tend to look different because I just deal with what I've got. 
and I think I think that's adding a uniqueness to it. That that also it goes back to it's kind of becoming a lost art on just altering it in post rather than like you said you were using whatever lighting conditions you happen to have the day you're shooting. Well, I I, I move I'm when I got back to after Magfest I'm uh, I'm going to be in a new filming location for a while and then I'm moving to a new new location. But my original location, which I've used in most of my episodes, I pretty much have – I have a light above me and I have a – there's a light that comes from the side because there are no curtains in that room. So depending of when I film, like daytime or nighttime, that affects it. And when exa- where I try to stay in the same place for the filming, but I don't always manage it. So that's the main factors. I've got two lights to the side of me and one that's like behind the camera pointed at me. That took me a while to position because there's some episodes where I've got shadows behind me until it took me a while to figure out just where it was to where the shadow was exactly behind me and never showed up. Like I said about like the young Frankenstein thing, you, you forget how to – like, Diamanda, you were bringing up how 48 frame will eventually take over. Well, I, I don't know if it will. I, I want to see film uh, expanded. Uh, you know, I don't think that any particular type of filmmaking should be destroyed or got rid of. I, I would like to see it uh, be used more often because I think it's more interesting than 3D. You know, I, I, I'm not a big fan of 3D. Whenever you can watch it without uh, having to use 3D glasses, I'll be happy. But t- till then, I can live without it. Just, just wait. You're you're a lot younger. Did you ever see one of the old red and blue movies in 3D? Yes, I uh, believe it. Uh, I think it's like Final Destination 4. It came in on DVD. The DVD box came with the 3D version and the regular version, and they came with the red and green, uh, sorry, red and blue glasses. Because I saw Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, The Cre- uh, Return of the Creature, and a couple of other movies in 3D back in the 80s. I mean, you think modern 3D gives you a headache? Try watching an <laughs> 80s movie in the theater for like I'm that. Not- I've actually never got a headache from 3D. It's it's just something that it just generally it it annoys me to a certain extent. You know, it's always you've got things coming towards you. What I would really like to see if they're going to do 3D, I want to see it so that you're seeing further in the background, so that it's not just stuff approaching you, it's stuff going away from you as well. I, I don't think I've ever seen a film where it does that properly. But the, one one of the good things about The Hobbit, because especially in the nature in the scenes out in in nature. It did look like you were literally go, walk, looking through the cinema at a at a scene outside, and so therefore the scene, the 3D looked a lot more natural than uh, than than most things. It's, it's, that's actually one of the complaints that I've heard. I've heard both film critics and just general audiences complain that the movie, when you see it at that high frame rate, it doesn't feel like a movie anymore, and it feels like a newscast. And they said, I just want to see a movie. I don't want it to seem so realistic. It seems like I'm just off camera. To be perfectly frank, a lot of the people making that complaint, they're just used to the way that things are. Uh, There's no, you know, there's no objective better or worse. There's just what you're used to and what's new. It's like, I'm sure people said something similar whenever they moved from like 16 frames to 24 frames. You know, technology evolves. This is going to shock everybody. I'm not against technology evolving. I'm against everyone throwing out the old technology immediately. For instance, like how quickly VHS was thrown aside for DVD. I embraced DVD. I've got tons of DVDs. I love DVD. DVD overtook VHS in only seven years what it took VHS the 30 years to build to. That to me was a little quick of just going – 
we're not even doing VHS anymore. This is if just I, over. If I had uh, if I had more space and money, I would love to. I, I still got some VHSs. I would love to have a lot more if I had more space and money because honestly, some things look better in VHS to my mind, like uh, horror movies. You know, you can lose a lot of the you when when the image is slightly fuzzier. Horror movies, you can hide their problems a lot easier. Like you know, you can things look darker. The the joins in the in like you know makeup and stuff are less obvious. And uh, sitcoms, sitcoms look better on VHS, I think, because the quality is it looks less like it's on a set. You've got the same thing with the the eighties syndicated American stuff. A lot of that stuff was shot on either sixteen millimeter or on videotape. Look at like the first season of Star Trek: The Next Generation or Friday the Thirteenth: The Series or Good God, Freddy's Nightmares. Those look horrendous on DVD. You, yeah. Like you were talking about Deep Space Nine, how it just exemplified all the flaws. This, it's not so much the flaws. It's just this: the vid, shot on videotape does not translate properly to digital. And I'm talking shot on eight a videotape eighties does not translate properly to video. The episodes look horrible on DVD. And I've even pulled out for my War of the Worlds. DVDs, I went and pulled out my original off-airs from 1988. My off-airs off VHS are cleaner copies than the official releases. That, to me, is a sad statement. Well, that might be because they didn't uh, convert it properly. It might just be a very bad conversion. um, When it comes to looking at different types of quality of image, for instance, uh, most of the people who who know who I am, who who listen to this, will know I'm a Doctor Who fan. I, I like classic Doctor Who. And the 60s Doctor Who is when the series looked best. You know, the the image quality did not get any better, worse. Uh, you know, it, the special effects and shit did not get any worse between the 60s and the 80s, but it looks much better in the 60s because it's black and white, and they filmed it for black and white. And black and white hides a lot of a lot of technical problems that you have in your film. Since since we got to wind this down, your final thoughts, since this isn't even the topic I'd planned. I just wanted to talk about the psychology of the weird stuff, and we got into a far more interesting area as we went along. Where do you think, Diamanda, that, that things are, are going with the success of The Hobbit? Do you think 48 is going to take over, or, or do you think it'll just kind of be there for the real high end, the, the Peter Jacksons, the James Camerons, the Ridley Scotts? I'm not. I'm not sure it has been a success so far. A lot of people don't like it. However, uh, Hobbit two and three are being done in it as well. And Brian Singer commented that he wants to direct X Men: Days of Future Past in the same way. So it could go either way. It could be a paradigm shift. Uh, it might. It probably won't be. It'll probably be like seventy millimeter. After a few people make it, it'll it'll be brought out every so often by a director who really wants to, who's who has some clout. You know, like a. Uh, Kenneth Branagh was the first guy in like 15 years to make a movie in 70 millimeter footage with his uh, Hamlet. I think it'll just be there as an extra tool in the in the toolbox. Maybe, maybe not. There's not a there's a lot of resistance to it right now. I think it'll be like 3D is now. It works for some movies, but it has its place. Unfortunately, if it's like 3D now, then that means it's going to fall into the wrong hands and it's going to be exploited in a ridiculous in ridiculous manners, such as how 3D, everything's coming out in 3D today. Post-conversion 3D, I think, is one of the worst things that's happened since CGI. Oh, yeah, yeah. but not every movie is in 3D. And there's certain movies that 3D doesn't work with, and nobody even thinks about putting them in 3D because it 
essentially still has its place being for just the big action movies. You're not yes. going to see a Nicholas Sparks movie in 3D. I hope yeah, not. Th- yeah, 3D, 3D should be limited to films that were filmed in 3D or possibly animated films, which can be easily and cleanly converted. If you haven't yeah. filmed it in 3D, you should leave it alone. Phantom Menace would be a perfect example. Well, it's some of the most animated. useless, some of the most useless 3D ever. It's all nearly it animated. Well, well, yeah, it is almost animated too. But all, all that basically happened was the only things that really came out in 3D were the subtitles and the credits. That was about the only thing that worked. Well, I think I, I got I might be on a different page than than you with when it comes to what you want from 3D. Like I. I'm not a big fan of the gimmicky shit flying at you sort of. And see, but that that's 3D. the era I came from. I came yeah. from the gimmicky shit flying at the camera era. So that's that's what I think 3D should be because there there is an age difference here. So, you know, if you've never seen Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone in 3D, you know, you're you're not getting the same movie I saw in 1983. Well, yeah, I'm not going to be able to see the same movie you saw in 1983 anyway because we've had such different lives leading up to it and the time is different where everyone's going to see the movie different slightly differently i uh, it's just you know neither of us are right or wrong about it my, my preference for 3d is just to make it look more real i disagree with it but i don't fault you for it yeah and, and uh, you know brad would agree with you brad probably would agree with probably me. brad and i don't agree on a lot especially <laughs> lately but he'd probably agree with me on that one so now, I'm, I'm quite sure i've heard him comment in in reviews that he prefers uh gimmicky 3d he loves his william castle so unfortunately we are out of time i want to thank diamanda for stopping by again we can only usually grab you when you're in the states so next time you're in the states let me know but where can people see the videos that you've talked about well if you want to watch uh, a lot of mine are available on thegotwiththeglasses.com along with a lot of other talented people's videos i don't say other talented people they're the talented ones um but if you want to watch my stuff my site it's diamandahagen.wordpress.com where i'm uh gimmicky and yelly and i talk about movies what about you jowski even though everybody already knows and nobody cares oh that's kind of mean geektruthmedia.com right now my website is gone because of the vietnamese again so you can only find me at geekjuicemedia.com but you can find all my shows there and my weekly column and my monthly column and blah 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 you know all this good night